So far in our study of the book of Micah, we have seen in chapter one, the sins against God by the people. Chapter two, we sort of observe the sins against each other, people sinning against each other. And then in chapter three, we saw the sins of the leadership of Israel, including the judges, the prophets, and the politicians. We ended on Wednesday night last uh, looking at those, those guys. And, um, and then in chapter four, we start to look forward uh, through the channels of history to the millennial kingdom. Micah's gonna talk about the millennial kingdom and the second coming of Christ, the coming kingdom of Jesus, which is great. Um, there's a little bit of a tricky thing, I'll warn you, that Micah does, and he bounces kind of in and out of um, the millennial kingdom, but also what gets you there. So he'll back up and talk about things like the tribulation <clears throat> and um, some of the, <clears throat> the precursors to the millennial kingdom, like the gathering of Israel, which we're watching as we speak. Um, and so we're gonna see some of these things that Micah's gonna bring up. And uh, you know, I, I don't really think Micah's the best book to use for the order of events of how they're all gonna unfold. While it does talk about those things, I think if you're looking for the order of events, I like to look at the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation puts it out in perfect order. And it even says of itself in Revelation 1.19, you know, John, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And that, that outline given to us in Revelation 1.19 kind of spells out the way it's all gonna unfold. And the book of Revelation's easy if you just take it sort of in chronological order. Um, it gets really confusing when you, you know, jumble up the book of Revelation. Um, but uh, one thing about Bible prophecy is the Lord did sort of encode in the Bible things about Bible prophecy that would not be understood until the times of the end. Uh, remember when Daniel wrote his book, seal up the words of this book until the time of the end, because the idea is it wasn't for their day. It wasn't even for Daniel's day for the most part. And Daniel walked away from writing his book saying, I don't have any idea what that's all about, but good luck with that history. And as, as history unfolds now, and, and you know, we have the book of Revelation, and it's sort of the key that unlocks the book of Daniel and Daniel then unlocks some mysteries in the other parts of the Bible. It's, it's really cool when you start putting it all together. But Mike is gonna look forward to the millennial kingdom, the second coming of Christ, and the, some of the days that are gonna lead up to that. Um, and let's take a look uh, here at chapter four, verse one. It says, but in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain." of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Here in uh, the beginning of this discussion, it talks about what the, really the beginning of the millennial kingdom is gonna look like. Now, if you're just, a, just joining us and if you're just kind of new to this stuff, the Bible talks about how it's gonna uh, be, uh, you know, after Jesus rose from the grave and then ascended into heaven, we entered into a church age where the Lord uses his church and the, and the Jews were largely dormant uh, unbelieving during the whole time from Jesus to the present day, largely. And Israel is in unbelief for the most part right now. 
But in this church age, God has done an amazing work through the Gentile church uh, or anyone, Jew or Gentile, who accepts Christ as the Messiah. But the Bible says at the end of that time of the Gentiles, then there's gonna be a kind of a cataclysmic event that's gonna happen in the world. And that is um, the rapture of the church, the removing of the church, the bride of Christ as the church is called. And then the Lord's gonna wake up the nation of Israel. And eventually in the tribulation period, seven years, Israel's gonna be um, able to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And then during that tribulation period, tribulation for the Jews, tribulation for anybody who's living on the earth, we're not gonna be here at that time, I believe. And if you don't know why, the last prophecy update I did in, um, in February was all about the reasons I believe in a pre-trib rapture. And if you missed that, you can uh, look at that in our prophecy update up on YouTube or on our website. Um, but but it's a, I believe it's a key uh, understanding to know that the Lord's gonna pull out his church and we get to be the bride of Christ. We're, we're, we go to the marriage feast of the lamb with the Lord. Tribulation then on earth, seven years. Af, at the end of the tribulation, when the Jews will be hanging by a thread and the armies of the world are gonna come together in a battle called Armageddon, Christ is gonna have his second coming. Well, Brett, I thought you just said that he raptured the church. That, isn't that the second coming? Well, as it turns out, the Lord is coming to the rapture in the clouds. He's not coming to the earth. We who are alive and are remaining at the time, First Thessalonians 4 tells us, we will be caught up and gathered together with the Lord and with the saints that have gone on before us. We get to meet them in the air, the Bible says. So um, people get confused when they think, well, the rapture is some secret rapture or secret coming. Nope, it's gonna be very known. Anybody who calls it a secret rapture is uh, someone who doesn't believe in the rapture. Uh, and I've never heard a pre-trib rapture person call it the secret rapture. That's just somebody um, using rhetoric to sort of make their stupid point. But anyway, um, all that to say, it's not a secret rapture. It's gonna be very known. Everybody's gonna know it's, what's going on. But um, when the church is taken up to be with the Lord, we get to be with the Lord, but that's when that tribulation seven years kicks in. At the end of that seven years, Battle of Armageddon, Jews will be saved during that time. It's gonna be an amazing time. Then that's the second coming of Christ, Revelation 19. Revelation six through 19 talks about the seven year period called the tribulation period. You never see the church in Revelation six through 19 at all. You see tribulation saints, people who accept Christ during the tribulation period but you don't see any mention of his church in Revelation 6 through 19. And then in chapter 19, he returns, and um, then he will uh, you know, do battle against those nations. And then it says he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And that's what Micah chapter um, you know, uh, four here, verses one and two is, is really starting to articulate that Jesus is gonna come and rule and reign from Jerusalem. This is an amazing thing. And, and it, it's, um, it says here that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. This, this might cause some of you Bible students to recall, where, where does the Bible compare or use as analogy um, the kingdom of Christ as a mountain? Anybody wanna jump in on that one? Hello? <laughs> Crickets, man, tumbleweeds blowing across the sanctuary right now. Anybody? Daniel chapter two. Do you remember? Oh man, I gotta go back and redo Daniel. Man, we just did this a few months ago, you guys. No, Daniel chapter two. Remember, it says there that the kingdoms of the world represented by the big Daniel's, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, gold, silver, bronze, um, iron, uh, feet of iron and clay. 
And that represents the nations of the world. And then a stone that was cut without hands, not with cutting of man's hands, is a stone cut without hands, will roll down the mountain and, or down the mountains and crush the, the kingdoms of this world. And then that stone, do you remember? It becomes a mighty, mighty mountain. The stone becomes a mountain. And then the Bible tells us, Daniel interprets, that mountain is the kingdom of God that's established, that's being set up. So there's something you have to kind of remember, there's this imagery in the Bible that when you talk about the mountains, there's actually a, um, for expositional constancy as they call it, um, whenever you read about mountains, especially when it comes into Bible prophecy, we're usually talking about um, some of the kingdoms of the world. Um, and it's not just uh, the kingdom of Christ as a mountain, there are many little mountains, but the one that's gonna come and subdue all the other mountains, if you would, is the mountain of the kingdom of Christ spoken of in Daniel chapter two. But that's the language here in our text when it says right there in verse uh, one, it says that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. That's Daniel chapter two right there. Um, many of your uh, uh, Bibles, if you have uh, uh, certain references, sometimes it refers to Daniel chapter two there. Um, and it says, then it'll be established in the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow unto it. So that's the idea. The imagery of the, of the coming kingdom of Christ is gonna be a great and powerful, mighty mountain. Mount Hood will look like a, you know, a pimple on an elephant's hiney compared to the mountain of Christ that's gonna be established. Uh, that's the imagery that we're, uh, we're talking about here. Um, by the way, did you know that um, when you, if you were to hold the earth, if you were giant, like, you know, um, and you could hold the earth and it was the size of a bowling ball, did you know that it would be smoother feeling to your hand than a, than a bowling ball? Even if with Mount Everest and Mount Hood, you, you wouldn't even perceive if you were, you know, there's interesting, you know, we, we think of Mount Hood as so giant, but the earth is actually really, really giant. So when you feel it, it's smooth. But um, I, I think that's kind of interesting. You know, we, we think of the glorious Mount Hood and it's huge as you fly by it coming into PDX and stuff, which it is. But, um, but when you see those mountains and are impressed by them, just remember there's a mountain that's gonna come that's more glorious than all the other mountains. Uh, mountains in the Bible speak of that power, that strength of the nations. And that's really the imagery that um, you know, Micah employs here. But what's gonna happen with all those other nations? When the mountain of Christ's kingdom in Jerusalem is established, then all the other nations and people are gonna flow to that mountain. It's, it's sort of gonna become the new epicenter of all things global in the earth during the kingdom of Christ. And many nations will come and say, let's go up to that mountain and let's learn of the things of God. That's, that's kind of what we're talking about here um, when it says that in verse two. And um, that's where he's gonna teach us of his ways. Uh, during the millennial kingdom, people will submit to Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the law is gonna go forth out of Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, that's gonna happen during the, the millennial kingdom. Now, um, now, by the way, uh, um, interesting that Jerusalem today is not that. Jerusalem, what is Jerusalem today? Have you ever thought about this? What a strange um, set of circumstances Jerusalem presents. Because Jerusalem, uh, as far as natural resources, well, there's not much there. As far as cities in the world, it's really not that glorious. I mean, I think Jerusalem is pretty in a certain way, but, um, but kind of, it's kind of dumpy in a lot of ways, honestly. I'm just being honest with you. Um, 
Um, and, um, and it's not really one of my favorite cities as far as, it, as looks go. What makes Jerusalem such a big deal? And why would Jesus um, call that his own? Um, in fact, it's interesting that the Bible says, the Lord says, my name is upon Jerusalem. It's like God wrote his name there and said, that's mine. Um, and so technically, who cares about Jerusalem? You know, there's all this talk about these provinces in Ukraine right now and cities um, and um, places that people care about because suddenly there's warfare and stuff. But why do people care about Jerusalem? Well, as it turns out, um, you know, it's, it's in some ways where spiritually the Catholics, the Protestants, the Muslims, the Jews, we all kind of converge at Jerusalem for some reason. Now the Muslims could care less about Jerusalem until fairly recent history. Um, it wasn't until Yasser Arafat's great, great uncle, the Grand Mufti, um, declared Jerusalem as the third most holy site of Islam. But that's like, that's like just a couple generations ago they called it that. Um, Jerusalem, how many times is it mentioned in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, like 800 times? How many times is Jerusalem the city mentioned in the Quran? Anybody? Zero. Uh, it's only become kind of a thing for the Muslims politically and all that in recent decades. But, but isn't it interesting that right there, that's where everybody converges to, to sort of worship, whether you're a Muslim at the Alaska Mosque and the Dome of the Rock Shrine, or you're a Catholic going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, or you're us as Christians realizing that Jesus was born and lived there in, in Israel, and we appreciate it for that. But it's become sort of this epicenter. But, um, but isn't it interesting that the world is, is angry at Israel and Jerusalem today? Um, some scriptures you could jot down maybe in your notes that are important to sort of understand what's going on today in the world. Uh, as it turns out, um, Zechariah chapter 12, verses two and three tells us what the last days will bring. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be uh, uh, in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people that burden themselves with it um, shall be cut in pieces, um, though all the people of the earth be gathered against it. Some people say, well, you know, this must have been AD 70 when, you know, Jerusalem was attacked. The problem is um, back then, not all the earth was gathered against Jerusalem, just, just the Romans. But if you notice today, all the earth is gathered against the Jews. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. And the world's narrative these days is, well, those Jews took over that, you know, they're occupying the West Bank, including Jerusalem. Um, but, but the Bible says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. And then if you fast forward to Zechariah 14, listen to what he says. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord, of course, is when God raptures his church and intervenes into humanity. That's called the day of the Lord, beginning of the tribulation through the millennial kingdom. The day of the Lord comes and thy spoils shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is that battle of Armageddon that's coming that I was just talking about. Um, and the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, women ravished, half the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Um, when did the Lord fight in a day of battle? Read your Old Testament. God fought in several battles uh, and it was not good for their enemies. Uh, if you remember the one angel that went against the Assyrian army and one night killed, a, what was it, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers uh, in one night, just poof, over. Um, so 
All that to say, um, you know, uh, this, is, this is what the Lord says of Jerusalem's gonna be this cup of trembling and anybody that tries to, to, to uh, you know, mess with Jerusalem, they're gonna be messed up. So it's interesting how, now some people have been asking me, Brett, this Ukrainian situation where, you know, Putin is, uh, you know, invading the Ukraine. We'll talk about this in our next prophecy update, Lord willing. Um, but, uh, but it's, you know, Bible prophecy, you gotta remember, it's not as much about all the other nations as it is, what does this have to do with Israel? And there is, by the way, a link to something that's happening in Israel uh, with what's going on in the Ukraine. Could you know what it is? Uh, well, uh, we'll talk about that uh, uh, when we get there uh, a week from Friday. Um, but, um, but, you know, it is interesting how people think, well, maybe it's the end of the world. This is World War III. If you hear the news pundits today, man, this is World War III and the Cold War has now begun again, they're saying. Um, it's an interesting day. We have good friends of ours who are, who are in Moscow and living there uh, and they were kicked out. They're, they're like, they gotta get back here now in the United States and uh, things are tense. Um, what does that have to do with Jerusalem? Well, th that Ukrainian conflict doesn't directly have anything to do, but there is something that's leading to the Gog-Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38, well, uh, or at least could be, um, that we'll look at. But all that to say, um, Zechariah just tells us that, man, those nations that try to handle Jerusalem, they're gonna be cut into pieces and messed up uh, when the Lord fights against them. So all that to say, uh, you know, and, and Zechariah uh, chapter eight, we could just go on and on with Zechariah. We'll be there in a few weeks. But thus saith the Lord of hosts, it shall come to pass that there shall come people, the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go speedily, I pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts and I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, in those days it shall come to pass that 10 men shall take hold out of all the languages of other nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, we will go with you for we have heard that God is with you. See, Zechariah is sort of um, speaking the same words that Micah is speaking here in verse two, when it says, come, let us go up to the mountain where the Jews are and learn from the Lord. It's the same thing and it's gonna happen when Christ comes in the millennial kingdom. You might say, Brett, I don't know about all this millennial kingdom. Well, I'm just worried about tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow's hard for me. Do I have a job tomorrow? Uh, or do I have to wear a mask tomorrow? Like a lot of us are worried about our thing tomorrow, but, but this could come sooner than you might think. And I don't know about you. I don't wanna be a tourist when I get to heaven. I wanna be an adventurer. I wanna be a tour guide and say, um, uh, here's what thus, thus the prophet Zechariah said in 820 that people would come up to Jerusalem and want to worship the Lord there uh, uh, and learn from him, Micah chapter four, verse two. This, this is all telling us exactly what's gonna happen at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And by the way, you know, when I talk about Jerusalem and its beauty, these are some pictures we've taken when we were in Israel. And it, there's a certain beauty to Jerusalem, I guess. But um, I believe that when Jesus returns and takes over Jerusalem, it's gonna become incredibly beautiful. Um, and uh, you know, and how beautiful are the mountains that the Lord you know, uh, is gonna uh, be appearing before. But all that to say, Micah chapter four tells us that this will all happen, that he will teach them their ways during the millennial kingdom. Now, um, this is where Micah kind of bounces a little bit. Um, what's gonna happen just before he does that? Well, he's, the Lord is the one who's gonna bring in his kingdom. And we read about this, um, uh, by the way, in verse three. It says in verse three, and he, 
shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Does this sound familiar? Who else spoke of this? Isaiah the prophet spoke these exact words, right? Isaiah chapter two. Um, maybe you're familiar with it because it's also on the UN building. Um, this, this verse, um, but if you'll notice, I don't know if you can see my letters there, that's kind of a picture, but they're on the wall of the UN building, but they shall beat their, you know, their swords. Now, now notice they left the first part of verse three off of there. If you compare your verse three, and he, that is the Lord, shall judge among the many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords. It's not the UN, the United Nothing, that's gonna, I'm sorry, the United Nations. It's not the United Nations that's gonna actually bring in an everlasting peace where people will beat their you know, uh, swords into uh, plowshares and their uh, spears into pruning hooks. It's gonna be the Lord who does that. Um, the UN, by the way, what a joke. I mean, this verse is, they're trying to take the credit for what God is going to do. Do you think the UN is gonna bring an everlasting peace into the world? Boy, the United Nations and NATO and all that, we're seeing what a joke it all is right now, right before our very eyes. Uh, it's a total joke. Um, by the way, uh, most people don't know this because they don't follow what's going on, but the UN is one of the most anti-Semitic groups in the world, do you know that? Um, you know, the UN's all about passing resolutions against nations that are bad actors. You know that, right? Like if there's humanitarian crisis around the world, the UN's supposed to condemn those crises. Meanwhile, we're sending our Olympics to the, you know, to China, uh, like it's like it's a great thing and what a wonderful place China is. And, um, and but did you know in 2020, the UN, um, uh, um, they actually passed a whole lot of resolutions for, for one year. Um, of the 23 uh, resolutions that the UN came up with in 2020, 17 were against Israel. Uh, this is not unusual. The UN, this comes from the times of Israel. You can also read this about this on Al Jazeera um, because they love this article. The UN condemned Israel 17 times in 2020 versus six times for the rest of the world combined. Um, let me read uh, one, um, one comment on this, uh, this information from uh, one of the Jewish uh, um, leaders. He said, the UN's assault on Israel with a, a torrent of one-sided resolutions is surreal, said Hillel Neuer, um, executive director of the Geneva-based UN Watch. It's absurd that the, in the year 2020, out of a total of 23 of the UN General Assembly resolutions that criticized countries, 17 of them, more than 70% were focused on one single country, Israel, and make no mistake, the purpose of the lopsided condemnations is to demonize the Jewish state. That's the goal of the UN is to demonize the Jews and the Jewish state of Israel. Why is the United Nations gathering against Israel? It's what the Bible says is gonna happen in the last days. We shouldn't be shocked at all. Uh, things are falling apart. No, they're coming together exactly the way God said it would. The UN is just fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And not only that, they're putting the scriptures on their own building, trying to take credit for what God is actually gonna do. Um, what, by the way, you know, while the UN puts that scripture on their building thinking they're gonna usher in peace and prosperity, which they're not, What's amazing is um, the church has become confused 
the church of Jesus Christ around the world has become confused on what's gonna usher in the, the kingdom of God. Well, um, actually, if you ask me, um, there's only one thing that's gonna usher in the kingdom of God, God. Um, well, Brett, we are the ones, we have to usher in the kingdom. And there's this whole thing of the kingdom now or dominion theology that sort of preaches that, man, we gotta elect Christian officials and we gotta get the world right and set up where there's a righteousness and a peace so that Jesus can come and rule and reign. Um, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says in the last days, perilous times will come. People will be falling away from faith. Um, things are gonna get worse before they get better. Um, and the, the better is when Christ comes and sets all the wrongs right. So, um, you know, some people believe that, you know, we're gonna do this somehow. We need to, as the church, take it by the heart. But remember the kingdom, Daniel chapter two, that was cut without hands, that's not man, comes and tumbles and destroys the nations of the world. And uh, the United Nations are gonna be a speed bump in that rolling down of that stone. Uh, when Christ comes. Uh, are you guys with me on that? That's important to understand that the United Nations is not uh, gonna be the entity that's gonna help us. But be that as it may, back to Micah chapter four. Um, uh, we see here in verse four, uh, it says, but they shall uh, sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. Now this is where Micah does kind of bounce around a little bit, but there's a time coming, Micah says, where people will sit under the fig tree or the vine. This is an idiom, by the way, of Israel, the fruitful branch, the, the, the nation Israel. Remember in Matthew 24, Jesus talked about the nation that sees the fig tree blossom, that, nation, that generation will not pass. Uh, what does it mean for the fig tree to blossom? Boy, we could talk about that, do a whole sermon on that. Um, some people say it was May 14th, 1948 when Israel became a nation. Maybe that's the blossoming. Or some people might say the Yom Kippur War when Israel got a bunch of land and Jerusalem back and the Temple Mount. Uh, or you know, some people could say it's today. They're, they're, the Jews are flourishing and largely sitting safely. Why are the Jews sitting safely? Because God has given them unusual favor. They're, they're the, a nation that's a speck. Tiny, tiny little speck. New Jersey is about the size of Israel. Um, and yet they're one of the most powerful militaries in the world. Um, and uh, they, they have proven that over and over again. And even though rockets come and fly over their borders all the time, because of technology, with the assistance of the United States, making their Iron Dome you know, system and Aero 2 missiles and stuff, um, we, we were helpful in that, fortunately, we were part of that. But you know, those missiles come in and largely just don't hit uh, Israel because of their technology. And the Jews have been prosperous and we're seeing the fig tree prosperous. And you can almost say verse four, you can check that box. Uh, every man sits under his vine and his fig tree and no one makes them really afraid. Verse five, for all the people will walk everyone in the name of his God and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. Now this verse is um, hard to interpret by some, but um, I like the ESV version, by the way, of this, this verse. Uh, I think it gets the nuance of what the Hebrew text is saying. For all the peoples each walk in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. Um, that's gonna, there's gonna come a time where the Jews will actually see that Jesus is God. Right now, the Jews are not following the true and living God. 
Um, that's the sad truth of it. Um, but there's coming a day where they will, and they'll do that forever and ever, like it says in verse five. And then verse six, in that day, saith the Lord, I will assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. Um, and, and you know, toward the last days, remember we're talking about the last days, um, which I believe we're living in those last days. So when Micah starts this chapter out, it says, but in the last days, that could be from right now through into the millennial kingdom. But one of those attributes is the Lord says, in that day, what's the Lord gonna do? I will assemble, I will gather her that halteth, I will gather her that has driven out um, her that I've afflicted. He's talking about Israel. And she was driven out, the diaspora, as it's called, where they were scattered. You know, it happened, you know, really from the Old Testament times, but even the, the pinnacle of the, the diaspora happened in AD 70, when the Romans finally, once and for all, crushed Jerusalem. And then the Roman emperors came after that and they drove the Jews out once and for all. Uh, probably the biggest emperor that did it was Hadrian, uh, the emperor who uh, basically made it a law that if you saw two Jews talking together in Jerusalem, you could kill them. You had a legal right to go and kill them both right there on the spot and, and let, let their bodies lay in the street. That was the Emperor Hadrian did that. So, so the Jews had to really flee Jerusalem and they were scattered, the diaspora. But the Lord says, I will gather them. Ezekiel 36 and 37 talks about the regathering of the Jews. And we, we see, we've seen that in the last couple hundred years where the Jews have gathered. So Micah's verse six is in line with Ezekiel 36 of the regathering. The Lord says, I will gather her um, that I have afflicted. And you can check that box. He has gathered them. Verse seven, I will make her that halt, uh, halted a remnant and her that was cast far off a, a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth and forevermore. Man, a strong nation and indeed, Israel is a strong nation. You know, one of the things the Gog-Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 declares is there's gonna be a confederation of nations led by Russia, of all places, and the leader of Russia, Gog and Magog, as the Bible says. And if you don't know this prophecy, pick up our teaching on Ezekiel 38 and 39. We've done in-depth studies on this, but that's where you kind of wonder, you know, um, could it be? I don't know for sure. I would never say for sure, but could it be that, that Russia is gaining steam right now and, and Putin is gaining power? Um, could it be part of the posturing before this Gog-Magog invasion? And, you know, the Ukraine situation is sad or horrible or whatever the situation is there. Um, I've been doing kind of informal interviews of a lot of our Ukrainians here in our church because we have a lot of Ukrainians, but I've noticed not everybody agrees on what's going on there. That's an interesting problem. But the truth is, biblically, the Bible says Russia will be a power in the last days and will eventually attack Israel. Um, that's what's interesting about the emboldening of Putin and what he's doing today. What's that gonna lead to? Um, that's the question you have to kind of ask yourself. But, um, but right now, Israel is a very strong nation and the Lord has blessed them. So a nation that's gonna attack Israel, they better be ready for a fight. Um, and they will lose. Uh, the Russians will lose that battle according to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, but that's the prediction. So Israel is a strong nation. You can check that box as well. Uh, check and check. They've gathered together. They're a powerful nation, one of the most powerful in the world, even though they're a speck 
compared to most nations, just geographically. Um, then verse eight, and thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. The daughter of Jerusalem is just an idiom for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, the tower of the flock, the stronghold, um, there's, there's all kinds of debate, what is that? Is that just a literal place? Um, and some people make the argument that there's a literal place called the tower of the flock. Others say, no, it's a place that's coming in the millennial kingdom the Lord will set up that's gonna be kind of a stronghold, uh, whether it's spiritual or physical, there's all kinds of debate about that, but it's all part of the strengthening of Israel when Christ comes is the idea there. Then there's a shift in verse nine. He says, now, why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city and thou shalt dwell in the field and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There thou shalt be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now this is an interesting discussion because all throughout the Bible, when it talks about Bible prophecy, Jesus used the idiom, um, uh, Paul used the idiom there in 1 Thessalonians chapter five of a woman in travail of child labor, labor pains. And it always relates to the, the last days, um, which is interesting. So Jesus did that in Matthew 24 when he said, it's like a woman going through childbirth. And so we have to remember, what is that like? Uh, well, us guys, we don't really remember that very well. Uh, but uh, I do remember counting and timing the, the, the you know, labor pains when my wife was in travail with child. And <clears throat> what, what did that tell us? Why did, why did we time the contractions? The reason is it tells you when the baby's coming. You, you can have a sense of when the baby's coming, when those contractions get more intense and more frequent you know the baby's coming right around the corner and, and that's why everybody times that and talks about that. And the Lord uses an idiom that would be known throughout all the ages from Adam and Eve to this day. People go, oh yeah, labor pains with a woman, we got that. Like that's, that's, an, that's an example that kind of works for all humanity for all time. That's kind of interesting. So then people say, well, bread, is this the end? World War III? You, you know, the, the Russians and the Chinese and men, there could be a war in Europe and that could be World War III. Everybody's freaking out. Who knows? But what we do know is this could just be another big contraction in the world. I think World War I was a contraction, a big one. World War II was another contraction. Uh, we're about due for another contraction. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's interesting how we see the world go through times of, of travail, like a woman with labor. But ultimately that travail, the pain, is gonna bring forth the, the Messiah, Jesus. And that's what Jesus says. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter five. Micah is one of the early guys to use that in the context of the last days. But what's tricky about this one is this is one of those dual fulfillments of prophecy because he's talking about the literal Babylonians. If you recall, the Assyrians would take out the Northern 10 tribes. The Babylonians would take out, take out the Southern two tribes. The, the Assyrians in 722 BC, 
um, and the Babylonians would take out the northern or the southern two tribes in 586 would be the final wave of the Babylonians. And that's really what, uh, what we're talking about prophetically here. Micah's saying there's gonna come a time where the, the southern two tribes, Jerusalem and Judah will say, where's our king? Do we have a king? And the answer will be no. Um, and the Babylonians are gonna come uh, 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 and, and attack, as it says there in verse 10. Um, you know, and thou shalt go even to Babylon, that's the captivity, um, there shall you be delivered, there the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. And eventually after 70 years of captivity, the Jews were allowed to leave Babylon. And Micah is speaking about this prophetically. So that's something you have to kind of remember that there's these, um, the gaze goes into the future, um, but, um, but as it turns out, they're gonna have more immediate future, just trouble with Assyrian Babylon. Um, but we're gonna talk about the king during the time of that. Does anybody remember who was the king uh, when the Babylonians in 586 ultimately took the Jews into captivity? Remember his eyes got poked out? A guy named Zedekiah and his children were killed right in front of his eyes and then they poked his eyes out so that the last thing he would see is the brutal death of his children. Like, can you imagine that? And that's the king of Israel. So when, when Micah's talking about this, they had no idea how accurate he was gonna be when he says, you know, in, in verse nine, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in thee? And the answer is there's not gonna be. When the Babylonians come, your king will be taken off uh, into Babylon with his eyes poked out. It's a brutal story, uh, but that's what he's referring to here. But he's also talking about how it comes on like the last days as travail. And then he talks about um, the Assyrians as we keep going, verse 11. Um, uh, it says, now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled. Let her, let her eye look upon Zion. Um, verse verse uh, 11 there is, is interesting because they're just basically uh, saying, um, you know, this stuff doesn't matter. By the way, um, on this, the birth pangs, I gotta back up a little bit. The birth pangs on verse 10, um, like a woman in travail, um, the thing is, uh, that's the kind of the clue that we have that this is still talking about the end of times, not just the Babylonian invasion. Jot down these scriptures real quick, just so you can have them as reference. Um, it says, you know, in Matthew 24, all these are the beginning of sorrows. That's the King James way of putting it. But the, the literal translation is all these are but the beginning of birth pains, like the ESV puts it, the beginning of birth pains. And then Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, for when they shall say peace and safety, which is interesting because right now in, in Israel, they're larger than peace and safety. That's, we're enjoying that. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. All of 1 Thessalonians 5 is about the last days, the rapture of the church, the tribulation period. Um, so are we seeing those pains right now, birth pains? Yes, not just battles like, you know, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, but disease and pestilence, nation against nation, ethnicity against ethnicity, as Jesus said there um, in Matthew uh, chapter 24. But not just ruling in Jerusalem, but the whole earth is what we're talking about. Um, in verse 11, now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. So that's, now we're talking about many nations, not just the Romans or the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but many nations. Now we're kind of gazing past, you know, even AD 70 and going to the future of the end when all the nations are turning against them, their eyes looking to Jerusalem. Zion's another name 
for Jerusalem, by the way. And verse 12, but they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves on the floor, or as the word in some of your newer translations, the threshing floor. Um, and verse 13, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron. Horn speaks of authority and power. The Lord says, chill out, Israel, don't worry. Even though all these nations, <coughs> excuse me, are gonna come against you, I'm gonna make your horn, your authority, your power like iron. I will make your hooves as brass. Brass speaks of judgment. And thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. This is what's gonna happen. All those nations are gonna turn against Israel in the last days. So his gaze goes beyond Assyria, beyond Babylon, beyond the Romans even, and the, the, the uh, end of the tribulation period. That's what's being talked about here. Now, uh, by the way, um, this threshing floor uh, is also an idiom of the great tribulation. <coughs> Excuse me, a little tickle happens once in a while. Um, the threshing floor, an idiom of the tribulation period. Isaiah 41, jot this down. Uh, verses 15 and 16 talks about how I will make a, th a sharp threshing instrument having teeth and thou shalt thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. That's speaking of the Lord, how he's gonna come like a whirlwind and thresh. Uh, that's, that's the idea of, of the uh, tribulation. Also in Jeremiah 51, 33, the Lord says, you know, daughter of Bab the ba Babylon is gonna be like a threshing floor. It'll be time to thresh her, yet a time of harvest to come. And we can talk about the story of Ruth and the threshing floor of Ruth and all that. Um, but, but the idea is all these nations are gonna come and say, yeah, whatever, Jerusalem. Did you see verse 11? where it says, now many nations are gathered against thee and say, let her be defiled. In other words, whatever. Who cares about Jerusalem? Let her be defiled um, and let, her, let our eye look on Zion. But then the Lord says, yeah, that's where I'm gonna come and deliver Israel. And who's gonna be the deliverer? Jesus. Now, um, the next verse, chapter five, verse one, in the Hebrew Bible, if you were to read the Hebrew Bible tonight, um, Verse one of chapter five is actually verse 14 of chapter four. So what, you say, what is this all about? Um, well, let's read the verse and then let's discern what chapter does it belong to? Remember, chapter breaks came, you know, centuries after the Bible was compiled and given to us. And the chapter breaks uh, were not inspired uh, as much by the Holy Spirit uh, as, as much as, I mean, just the scripture all is inspired. But we added the verses, which I'm thankful for, because we can tell you to turn to chapter five of, of verse one. Um, that's helpful. But, but the Hebrew Bible, you know, original Bible actually said verse one, it says, now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with the rod upon the cheek. And that's the last verse of chapter four. Now, why would the Jews do that? And why does this King James of mine from 1611, uh, why did they put this here? Um, it depends on who you think we're talking about. If you think you're talking about Jesus, the Messiah, who would be smitten on the cheek uh, with a rod, um, then you'd, you'd put that in chapter five. But if you think we're talking about Zedekiah, the king that we were referring to um, back in verse nine, um, why does that cry aloud? There's no king in thee. Um, uh, which one is it? Well, here's a few things to think about. And, and I wouldn't die on this battlefield, but there's scholars who have debated this verse. 
Um, I feel that um, this verse, uh, that it belongs in chapter four, and I'll tell you why. Um, and it has to do with the Babylonian captivity. And, and, and actually, you know, what, what um, you know, it says, they shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Did, did Jesus, was he smitten with a rod on the cheek? Um, no. But it does seem that Zedekiah was, minimally his eyes were poked out with a rod. Like there, we do know that for sure. And we are talking about the, the king of Israel during that Babylonian time that was referred to earlier there. Also, um, Christ wasn't smitten in any siege of a nation over, like the, the, the Romans had already occupied Jerusalem. There was no siege happening. It says, um, their daughter of troops, he hath laid siege against us, they shall smite the judge. That's exactly the conditions when Zedekiah the king had his eyes poked out, they were under siege of the Babylonians. Um, so he was not smitten um, uh, during a siege, Jesus wasn't. And so I don't believe this is a, a speaking, speaking of Christ. Now the reason there's confusion is the next verse, verse two of chapter five, is absolutely about Jesus. So that's where the confusion lies. Um, uh, and, and so if somebody really wants to make a, a case that this is Jesus and put it in chapter five, that's great. Because Jesus was smitten and bruised. And that's something we do know. He was bruised on our half, smitten, despised, rejected, bruised and beaten beyond recognition. So we, we do know that that happened to Christ. Um, but I believe this is actually referring to Zedekiah. And then chapter five, verse two is the beginning of a new chapter. That's, that's what um, a lot of scholars believe at least. And, um, and so we're talking about uh, uh, that. By the way, that story of Zedekiah, 2 Kings 25, um, seven, where it says, and they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters and brass and carried him to Babylon. Um, I believe it's Micah's referring to this shameful treatment of the Jewish king uh, during the time of Zedekiah. Uh, but that's just my opinion on that. Um, you, can, you can do further study if you like. So then you get chapter five, verse two, where um, now we're talking for sure about Jesus and I'll show you why. Um, it says it right here in verse two. But thou Bethlehem, Epaphra, or Ephratha, as some say, thou shalt, uh, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. That is to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Wow, this verse is packed full of stuff. The ruler that's gonna come, as it says here, he's gonna come from Bethlehem, um, Ephrathah, uh, uh, even though Bethlehem's little, it says here, Be Bethlehem was, oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Like it was a little tiny speck of a village, really, in Bible times. Why, why is that such an important place? Isn't it interesting that Jesus, everything about his, his first coming was humble, lowly. He made himself of no reputation. You know, if Jesus wanted to be a big deal, he could have said, I'm gonna be born in Rome. Uh, and I'm gonna be born on the main street where everybody sees the glorious coming of the Messiah. But he, he chooses this little Bethlehem that's a worthless little nameless town. That's what it says, just Bethlehem of Ephrathah. And, and by the way, do you remember, um, they, even the Jewish scholars knew that's where the Messiah was supposed to come from. Uh, 
Um, It's Matthew chapter two, verse four through six. We read, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is written by the prophet, which prophet? Micah. Chapter five, verse two. Um, It was written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah. For uh, out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Um, So uh, they knew that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem because of Micah chapter five, verse two. It's too bad they didn't know more about the the first coming of Christ. Uh, They knew enough. You know what's what's interesting about these dudes in Matthew chapter two? Um, These wise men or, or magi or whatever from Babylon were more interested in the Jewish Messiah than the Jews were. And they're saying, where's this uh, you know, Messiah gonna be? And they're following the star to Bethlehem. They're interested. Herod says, man, I wanna find this out. Talk to the Jews. Where's this Messiah supposed to be born? And the Jews, no, oh, it's supposed to be Bethlehem. Meanwhile, there's a star shining over Bethlehem. And the Jews are like, yeah, whatever. They don't even get up off their duff to get out of Jerusalem and go a 15 minute hike to Bethlehem and say, yeah, maybe we should go see what's going on here. The, the rest of the people think there's some kind of a king being born in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem, whatever. And they could care less. By the way, there's gonna be people that will miss Christ's second coming or not be ready for it with the same attitude. Yeah, it's supposed to come. Jesus is coming again, second coming, but who cares? The Bible talks a lot about prophecy and how it's gonna be in those last days, but who cares? It's just gonna happen whenever. Uh, Meanwhile, we're seeing all the signs of the days we're living in today that it looks like we're living in the last days, if you ask me. Um, And people are just like indifferent. Same as these Jews, who cares? Um, And they told Herod, somewhere around Bethlehem. And then, you know, you know the rest of that story. Um, So this is an amazing prophetic word, one of the powerful. By the way, there's over 300 specific prophecies about Jesus in his first coming from the Old Testament that Jesus of Nazareth would have to, um, you know, sort of fulfill to be the true Messiah. This is one of those 300. He would be born in Bethlehem. And there was all kinds of confusion because there's prophecies about how he would, you know, live in Nazareth, but there's also prophecies of how he'd live in Egypt. Well, which one is true? The answer, all of them. Do you remember? Because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but when Herod tried to kill all the little kids, they, they fled to Egypt where Jesus lived for a while. And then he was brought up to Nazareth where he would be raised as a carpenter's son. Um, all those prophecies came to pass truth, truly in one person, Jesus. Um, now there's another phrase here that you really need to know because it's giant and I probably don't have time to do it justice tonight. But did you see when it's talking about the one born in Bethlehem, um, it says um, that the the one that's gonna come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. What is that all about? This is basically saying the king of kings that's gonna be born, Messiah, king of the Jews, he is a preexistent being that he was he would be before actually being born in Bethlehem. He preexisted that. The, it's a doctrine we call preexistence that Jesus existed before being born in Bethlehem. Um, there's all kinds of scripture about this. Um, in Genesis one one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and and it says and and remember when God talks about us, He says, "Let us create man in our image." Why is God speaking in plural there? 
Um, you know, it's an interesting uh, thing that uh, the Holy Trinity, God is one God in three persons. And when God says, let us create man in harmony, Colossians tells us Jesus was there at creation. Um, let me give you a few scriptures in case you're, and there's a ton of them I could give you. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14 of the same chapter, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, that's Jesus. In the beginning was the word. Jesus was there at the very beginning. That's what this tells us in John chapter one. Um, why? Because Jesus is God. This is why the Mormons, you know, changed this in the Book of Mormon. Uh, you know, they, they said it's a Bible just like your Bible. Nope, it's a Bible just like ours. But they tweaked a bunch of words. I'm just telling you the truth. You can look this up, but you don't see. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. You see, um, the Word was God. They say in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Um, and the Mormons believe in multi-gods. God was a man like you and me that happened to be a really good Mormon and became God. And you could become God too, eventually. Now, here's the problem. I've noticed a lot of my Mormon friends, they don't know their doctrines very well. They might know the Book of Mormon. They might even know the doctrines and covenants, um, which is where a lot of the crazy doctrines come from, doctrines and covenants. But even beyond that, the quotings of the, of the Mormon fathers and, and you know, the, 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 the early uh, purporters of Mormonism, they said some crazy stuff. And that's where you get all this stuff that you know, Jesus, they, they don't believe Jesus is God. Uh, that's why he says, they say the word was a God, because uh, that, that would make Jesus God. They have a lot of other problems about that. But, but um, if you're a Mormon and you're watching this and you're upset at me for saying that, um, there's all kinds of information that the church has been trying to show Mormons for years. And, and here's the hardest part. The Mormons are trying desperately in the last 30 years to look just like the church. They'll do everything they can. I've had people write me letters and bless their heart. They say, Pastor Brett, I, I, I loved your teaching until you slammed the Mormons one Sunday. And uh, I, I go to the Mormon church. Hey, it's okay. Um, do, here's what you gotta do. Do some research about the Mormonism, the way it was formed. And, and, uh, and don't just look at the doctrines and covenants. Look at all the, the, the doctrines that have come into the Mormon church. And it gets weirder and weirder the more you look. The church itself is trying to cover over all those things. And um, even today, there's, there's, Mormons even struggle to know, like for something very simple, do they believe that Jesus is God? And the answer is no. But you'll find some Mormons that think, well, I think Jesus is God, they're united, and there's, it's all syntax and nuance. You gotta read your own doctrines and covenants. You gotta read your own writers of Mormonism because they make it clear that Jesus is the, not, the, not God, he's the brother of Satan, for crying out loud. Like that, that's, that's not the Jesus I believe in. The Mormons believe in a different Jesus than the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, the Church of, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints worships up a different Jesus than the Church of Jesus Christ. And it's really sad how many people are deceived by that. Um, by the way, I, I could just go on and on on these scriptures. John 17, five, it says, and now, O Father, Jesus was praying in John 17 to the Father in heaven. You say, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus is God, but check this out. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had in, with thee before the world was. Jesus was claiming to have been there before the world was even created. 
And he was saying that when he was praying to his father. Um, and then this is a good one, um, get us ready for Christmas, <laughs> even though we just celebrated that. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born. Who's that? Jesus, born in Bethlehem. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. Wait, what? The Mighty God. Mormons, hello. The, the, the Jesus, the child, would be called the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father. This is the mystery of the Holy Trinity, that Jesus is God and God is Jesus. They're all part of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit is in there as the third part. Um, so, you know, here's the child that's gonna be born and he's gonna be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. That's Jesus who preexisted. Um, very important stuff. So this doctrine of, of uh, the Trinity and the preexistence of Christ, it is important. And this little verse, verse, um, verse two, kind of just tosses that in there for us to chew on uh, tonight. That his goings have been from, the, from of old, even from everlasting. That's a pretty radical statement. Well, then uh, verse three. Therefore um, will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth have brought forth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Now, of course, um, you could apply this, by the way, to both the Babylonian thing we read about in chapter four or the, the uh, gathering of the Jews again. You can see both. Um, one's talking about the, the uh, Babylonian captivity, one's talking about the tribulation period. You can see the dual fulfillment of prophecy in this, uh, again, with the travail of the woman and child. Um, that's what people see there, both. Verse four, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. And uh, it says, in majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great to the ends of the earth. Um, mark that he shall stand and feed. The, the word feed there is interesting. It's, it's, the, it's the Hebrew word that is transliterated in the uh, Septuagint to the Greek that's the same kind of word for pastor, which means feeder. Did you know that's what the word pastor means? Feeder, it's a feeder of the flock. And that's what pastors are supposed to do, feed. And, this, and the, the food that we're supposed to serve as pastors is the word of God. If a pastor's not feeding the congregation with the word, then they're not really a pastor as the old term is. But it's a shepherding term, by the way. That's the term being used here. And so, so when all that's coming down, Jesus is gonna stand and he's gonna feed. I love that about our savior. I can't think of anything that sets Jesus forth more wonderfully than the figure of the shepherd. You know, the shepherd cares for the flock. It speaks of protection and care and salvation and, and contentment. You know, he leads us beside still waters and he feeds us and leads us to the green pastures, you know. Um, I love the Bible, the progression that the Bible does. You know, he's called the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep, Psalm 22. Um, in Psalm 23, he's the great shepherd who keeps his sheep um, even today. But in uh, Psalm 24, he is the chief shepherd who's coming in glory. Uh, his entire ministry is gonna be set forth under this office of shepherding. And even in the millennial kingdom, he's gonna be feeding in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord God. I love that. And verse five, and this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land and when he shall tread in our 
palaces. Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod in the uh, entrance, entrances thereof. Thus shall, be, uh, shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as the dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man nor waiteth for the sons of men. So um, who is the Assyrian who treads in the palaces? Um, um, this, is, um, this is interesting because we could talk about, you know, Sanharib, who is the Assyrian who came and ultimately would, would mess up the Northern 10 tribes, but the Assyrians really didn't do Jerusalem. So what's this talking about? This is where <clears throat> Micah's gaze is going past into the future. And one of the nicknames given to uh, the Antichrist, and by the way, there's many names that are given to this, this coming Antichrist. Um, I don't know why we stuck with the term Antichrist. I think it sounded dramatic, so we stuck with it. The Antichrist is coming, which is funny because it's true, but the Bible believes that there's many Antichrists, but he will be called the Antichrist, that is one name, but he's only called that like a couple times in the whole Bible but he's also called the Assyrian. Did you know that? This coming world leader, one of the names the Bible gives to this guy is the Assyrian, and that's the one I think we're referring to here um, as a, uh, an Assyrian would be. Um, he's also called the son of perdition, the man of sin, um, the beast. Uh, there's other names that it's given to this coming world leader. But um, this, uh, this title given to the Antichrist, um, uh, and you say, well, what is, what is the, you know, the Assyrian have to do with anything? By the way, in the peak of the Assyrian Empire, it was really all of the Middle East. Um, in fact, did you know that the Assyrian Empire even included um, uh, parts of uh, Iran, of all places, which is kind of interesting. Um, Ezra chapter six, verse 22 talks about, you know, the Assyria that was part of Persia in Bible times. So uh, it was a huge calling us Persians Assyrians, Ezra did. But, um, but basically it's, it's saying that, um, you know, verse seven, the Jews will, will become a blessing, but they will also become judges. The remnant of Jacob, verse seven. So the Assyrian, I think is this coming world leader. This is when Jesus stands up, he's gonna stand against this coming ruler, Antichrist. And, uh, and as the shepherd protect the flock of Israel during the tribulation period. Well, quickly, we're running out of time. Verse eight. Um, it says, and the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he go through both treadeth down and teareth in pieces and none can deliver, thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries and all thine enemies shall be cut off. Um, this is what the Lord's gonna do, <laughs> excuse me, to all those nations that are gonna hate Israel and come against Israel. Verse 10, and it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee and I will destroy thy chariots. Um, some people kind of get weirded out about this. Brett, who rides horses and chariots today? Well, um, you know, this is biblical language, prophetically speaking of weapon, you know, weapons that could be modern. 
Um, but there's no name for them. They, what are they gonna say? Uh, the Mercurva tanks uh, or the Apache helicopters or whatever. Um, that's not really the language. It's okay that they're using the idea of chariots and horses. We shouldn't be, but this is talking about in that day, verse 10, the kingdom age, that's what's gonna happen. And verse 11, I will cut off the cities of thy land and throw down all thy strongholds. And I will cut off, interesting, witchcrafts out of thine hand. And thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Some of you might say, Brett, come on. What are we, you know, Hogwarts here talking about witchcraft and stuff? Do you understand the idea of witchcraft and the darker things that the Bible talks about? In the New Testament, witchcraft, necromancy, there's a word that's often associated with that and it's the word pharmakia is the Greek word where we get our word pharmacy. And I can't help but see what's happening in the world, especially in the United States with all the drug problems that we have today. Um, so while some people might say witchcraft, mischcraft, that's like there's, there's a few weird witches in Ashland, Oregon, or maybe in parts of Portland, uh, there's some witches, you know, on Halloween killing cats up in the mountains. Uh, that actually happens in Ashland. When I was down there, uh, you'd find dead cats after Halloween. It was a, a true thing. Um, some of you guys are, oh, others are like, yes. Um, <laughs> harps in heaven, I'm telling you. Uh, there will be cats in heaven. Um, <laughs> but um, witchcraft, the idea is, um, you know, we, we picture like the green witch from the Wizard of Oz, no. Um, witchcraft takes on so many different forms, including, you know, all this drug stuff that we're doing. And I believe it can uh, mean anything from, you know, some of the uh, fentanyl that's coming across and killing people today in Portland and all the syringes laying on the streets in Portland, or we could even talk about the overprescribing of medications, uh, you know, on people. Did you see again? I, I've talked about this in past times, but they've done other recent studies on the rivers in the world, and one of the biggest problems in the world's greatest rivers is the amount of these um, medications people are taking, and then you know it, it goes through their body and through the septic systems of cities and stuff. And even after water filtration and all the stuff that that goes through, there's still uh, startling amounts of these drugs flowing now in the rivers of the world. Um, and it's causing all kinds of problems uh, with fish life and stuff like that. Um, you know, I, I really believe that we are the most medicated, drugged out people in the world's history. And I wonder if part of this is the cutting off of witchcrafts. Some of that's gonna be linked to that word pharmakia, which deals with drug uh, abuse and what have you. Well, I digress, verse 13. Um, thy graven images also will I cut off and thy standing images out of the midst of thee and thou will no more worship and uh, the work of thine hands. Uh, by the way, idolatry is alive and well today. We just do it a little differently. Um, verse 14, and I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee and so I will destroy thy cities and I will execute vengeance in, in anger and fury upon the heathen such as they have not heard. And that lines up with what Jesus said when he said, you know, the tribulation period is gonna be like no other time in the world's history. So, um, so um, this idea of the Lord coming and dealing with that, that idea of uh, witchcraft and all that stuff, you know, it, it's interesting, uh, speaking of drugs and stuff, um, you know, we're, we're providing syringes and then there's this whole thing about, are we gonna provide crack pipes? Did you see, um, this is the hill, Rubio and uh, um, Manchin offer bill to prevent feds from buying crack pipes. Um, like who would have thought we'd see a headline like this? 
Um, we got to stop everybody from buying crack pipes for everybody. Man, we're living in crazy, weird times. Um, but the good news is, uh, and, and one thing you can do as we study the Bible is remember that Christ is coming, that the Lord's kingdom is going to be set up. Jesus taught you and me and the disciples to pray, Lord, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's praying for the coming kingdom. That's praying for what Micah actually is articulating here about the kingdom when Christ would come. Now with the, the prophecy of Micah, you can kind of see how the times, the disciples of Jesus' time, remember how confused they were about, well, when are we gonna attack the Romans, Jesus? When, when are we gonna, you know, Simon the Zealot, he was a zealot. He was a guy who would have wanted to thump on the Romans and thought, I'm joining Jesus' team because he's the king of the Jews, so that means we're gonna revolt against the Romans. But you can kind of see when you just read the, the book of Micah, you get a snippet that it's a little confusing. Well, he's gonna be born in Bethlehem, okay, check. The disciples would have thought, but then he's gonna crush the kingdoms. Oh, that's awesome. So you can't blame the disciples, really, if you ask me, for thinking, when do we attack the Romans? And when they saw Jesus die on the cross, they're thinking, what in the world is this all about? And why did the disciples, when Jesus died on the cross, did they go back to Galilee and start fishing again? Because what they had envisioned, they just didn't see it happen. They go, oh, maybe he wasn't the Messiah. He was, but they thought he wasn't because he didn't do what they thought. And if you just take Micah chapter five, you'd read, well, he's born in Bethlehem and then he's gonna subdue the nations. Um, but Micah's prophecy would be speaking of Jesus in his second coming. And that's the part that they missed in those days. Um, so it's an interesting challenge for, you know, I don't blame the disciples for being a little confused. Even if you were a scholar of the Old Testament, it would have been hard to understand. And, and Lord even says, I'm gonna unfold the, the prophecies in sort of a mystery. It's gonna be a little bit concealed so that you don't fully understand. But the Lord would say, I'm gonna reveal to you my plan throughout time and through the ages. You and I are living in a, an age where we uniquely have kind of a bird's eye view of the whole picture. And it's not hard to picture right now, the second coming of Christ. That's the truth. And there's a huge leadership vacuum in the world right now, unless you have Trudeau, what an amazing leader he's proven to be. Or Biden, he's just instilled so much confidence in our nation. Um, or Putin or whoever you wanna talk about, like the, the leaders of the world right now, there's a huge vacuum and the stage is set for this coming world leader called Antichrist. And he's gonna unite the nations in some ways. He's gonna be Mr. Peace or seemingly uh, but then he's gonna turn against the Jews and anybody who believes in Christ. And then Christ is gonna return and subdue the Assyrian, the Antichrist, the, the world leader in the last days. And Micah's touching on all these things, but the New Testament guys would have had a hard time putting all that together. How can we put it all together? Man, we got Daniel, we got the book of Revelation, first and uh, second Thessalonians. We've got all kinds of commentary on what we just read in Micah. That's how we can discern to know what Micah's talking about. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Yeah, that's the key right there. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful to be able to uh, look through scriptures and see um, your plan. And Lord, we do see the world in real trouble right now. And we see uh, perilous times. Lord, we know that all throughout history, there's been perilous times and birth pains that have come and gone. And whether this is the one that brings the child or not, we don't know, but we wanna be the faithful servant that's watching and waiting, looking for your coming, that we'd be ready for that, Lord. 
So wake us up. May we serve you with all of our hearts, Lord, and look forward to that day um, with joy, knowing that someday we'll be with you forever and eternity. So bless these, your people who've taken the time on a Wednesday night to study the word. May it bring good fruit in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.